What if we do a fry taste test? I'm Bryce. This is Plastic Urns. And that was me talking about some of the uh, more intriguing moments towards the end of my dad's life. This episode is going to be a bit different than the others in that it's just going to be me talking. But I hope I'll say some things that resonate with you. Next episode will be our last of the season, but we'll have a special guest on and I think it'll be a lot of fun. So get excited for that. And as always, Thank you to Brian Pedersen for the support and to Coco Brodden for the music. And now, back to those french fries. What? You want to do a french fry taste test? I asked my dad. Yeah, go ahead and get fries from three different places and we'll see which is the best. But make sure one of them is from McDonald's. R- really? You-, you want me to go out and get fries from not one, but three places right now? I again asked my dad, hesitant as I knew that I would be the person to go out and get said fries. Yes, and I'm tired of saying it, he responded decisively. Unfortunately, this request was not out of the ordinary for my father. The same man who, years prior, decided that one day we were going to go taste test hot dogs. Not some gourmet creations, but Chicago dogs. Cylinders of Vienna beef boiled in water as old as the hot dog stand itself. We went to three different places across the city, and, upon realizing all the hot dogs were identical, promptly gave up. There were two things, however, that made this fry question more peculiar. One, it was at the height of the pandemic. And two, my dad was a week away from dying. But regardless... There was no room to argue with the man in the wheelchair in front of me, literal feet away from what would become his deathbed. I managed to find three restaurants, all serving fries, all open in the middle of the pandemic, and all within a mile of each other, a key criteria to ensure they would stay warm. An Irish pub, an Indian restaurant, and McDonald's. He ate 11 fries total, and McDonald's was the winner. For the 10 months prior to the fry contest, My interactions with my dad had been confined to morning FaceTime calls via WhatsApp. As the pandemic had worsened, my dad became increasingly fearful. Six and a half years of esophageal cancer, coupled with an unrelenting chemotherapy regimen, had ravaged his immune system and made him especially susceptible to the impacts of COVID. No matter how much I'd plead, his response was always the same. No. It's too much time. It's not worth the effort. It's not safe. So for 10 months, from the last time I saw him at Christmas of 2019 to October 2020, all I saw was a slow, imperceptible decline from behind a phone screen. There was an uptick in swearing as my dad struggled to pick up the phone to answer my calls. Literally struggled to do so, a side effect of the years of chemotherapy, which had broken down the nerves in his fingers and caused a condition called neuropathy. He had no dexterity left in his hands and was unable to easily pick up the phone or type or eat. But thousands of miles away in San Francisco, 
All I saw was the phone. I also saw when he went into a wheelchair. The radiation on the tumors, which had spread from his liver to his brain, had caused a degradation to his balance to the point where he could no longer walk across the house, let alone down the street. And then I heard when he went into hospice care, a solemn acknowledgement that after six and a half years of chemotherapy and radiation and myriad other treatments outside the scope of Western medicine, that there would be no more. But that was it. Over 10 months, that was all I really knew about his condition. That he was worsening, but I didn't know how much. Sometimes our morning calls were hour-long dynamic discussions of how we would have gone about moving the pillars of Stonehenge into place. And other times they were five minutes because he was too weary to talk. But for 10 months, that was all. Until one day, at the height of the pandemic, he just told me to come out. Now, I had seen how quick and unpredictable my mother's decline had been just over a year prior. How in the span of a day, she went from cogency to hallucination. And so now with my dad, I flew out from San Francisco to Chicago as quickly as I could. My dad told me on a Wednesday morning, and Friday night, two days later, I was in Chicago. I had no expectations for what I was walking into or what state my dad would be in. But I walked into the house to find my dad's hospital bed in the center of the living room, with the couch pushed to the side. No longer able to navigate the stairs, my dad now had a hospital bed on the main floor of the house, which could be raised and lowered so that a caregiver or my stepmother Amy could move him more readily in and out of it. My dad, as I walked in, was sitting at the kitchen table and, with a meek smile, turned his head to see me. Too weak to move, though, his torso stayed in place. And as we ate dinner, he stayed in that same place. Body turned 45 degrees to the table, eyes glazed and simultaneously looking at me and through me. He barely spoke, and when he did, his words were slurred and came out as gentle puffs of air. It was the worst I'd seen him, but I was hopeful it was only because he was tired. All of our calls had been early in the morning, so I had to hope that the next morning he would be, again, the vivacious self I'd seen before. But I was fearful for something worse. I woke the next morning to have those fears confirmed. He did not awake with a burst of energy and the vivacity he'd had on the phone days prior, but rather in the same downtrodden state he was the night prior. Broken speech, increasingly catatonic, and struggling to even check his email, a task that was formerly the height of any morning. His meek morning, just the same as the night before, set the trend for the week I was there. Over that week, he worsened not just from one day to the next, but even within days, such that that night was markedly worse than its morning. In order to keep an eye on him, my stepmother Amy had previously purchased the baby monitor, and each night she would leave the monitor by his bedside on the main floor of the house, and then carry the speaker of that monitor up to their bedroom upstairs. Inevitably, within two hours, my dad would call out for help, for water or a bite of food or to have his heating blanket turned on or off, some benign thing he no longer had the dexterity or wherewithal to do himself. And each night, Amy would stumble downstairs, turn off that electric blanket, and then trudge back upstairs. Until my dad called out again, and Amy would again come back down, turn the blanket on, and then climb back upstairs. And then it would happen again, and again, and again. 
until too weary to surmount the steps, Amy would fall asleep on the sofa beside my dad, desperate to at least get three hours of sleep. To help out and at least allow Amy to sleep a few hours, I began taking the baby monitor for the first portion of the night, then handing it off to her halfway through. The second night of this routine, I was in the basement. My mind turned off as I watched some generic Marvel movie when my dad cried out for help. Now, my father was an outspoken man, so his calls were never innocent asks for support, but quite aggressive yelps. Help! Bryce! I need help! Hurry! Hurry! This tone, however, was the one he always took when he cried out for help, and so I expected it to be some innocuous thing. Water. Maybe a bite of peach. Maybe he was too hot or too cold and needed his heating blanket adjusted. Unfortunately, I was not so lucky, as my dear father decided to be just a smidge more interesting. I can't feel my balls. That's right. I rushed upstairs to my dad's bedside to find out that he could not feel his crotch. And now, it was my problem. Neuropathy, the same condition which made it so my dad couldn't type or use a phone, also made it so that he couldn't feel his crotch. I was desperate for a way out of the situation, and yet only drew blanks. And as I idled, my dad did not, instead squirming relentlessly as he continued to shout. Afraid he'd wake up Amy, who I desperately wanted to get at least a few hours of much-needed sleep, I did what I had to do. And, moments later, he was back asleep, and I had retreated downstairs. Until 15 minutes later... He called out again, and I trudged upstairs. I can't feel my balls. Now, fortunately, I was becoming a fast expert in my father's crotch, and so as I'd done before, I scratched and dashed. And again, he was sound asleep before I'd even hit the stairs. And yet, after another 15 minutes, it happened. Except this time, as I scratched, I wasn't met with his eyes flickering shut, but a demand. No, higher. I needed to go higher. And so I inched my way up, progressing up my father's stomach as I reached his belly button, and he continued to yell higher, until he stopped me. No, other side. At which point I had to draw a line. Dad, I love you, and I'll get you water or cereal or a peach. We'll help you turn over. But I'm not going to keep scratching your balls for you, and certainly not your taint. So please, for me, go back to bed. And somehow, in my father's hallucinatory state, he did. And I was relieved from ball duty. That crotch conundrum was the fourth night I was in Chicago, and five days before my dad would die. My dad went through the last three months of my mother's life in a week, each day getting markedly worse, not only from one day to the next, but also through the day. When I first took off for Chicago, my dad was able to hold a coherent conversation over FaceTime and open and lead Zoom meetings. But just four days later, he no longer knew how to open his email. His speech was both illogical and slurred, and the latter made the former even more pernicious, 
as we struggled to figure out if a given sentence did actually make sense, and it was just us who couldn't understand what my dad was trying to communicate. The day after I landed in Chicago, I told my brother Lucas, who was living in Hong Kong at the time, how our dad was doing. I told him he was much worse than our dad had let on via phone, and even markedly worse than just the day before. I told Lucas I thought our dad may have three weeks left, but that that was a crude guess based on my experiences with my mom. I recommended that Lucas come in as soon as he could, that flight cost was meaningless because things are unpredictable and can happen suddenly. Lucas booked a flight that day for Friday, landing one week after I had. As the week drew on, our dad's rate of decline hastened, and the three-week estimate progressively ticked down. Before Lucas took off, he had one last conversation with our dad and told him he would see him soon. The next day, while Lucas was in the air on a 13-hour flight, our dad went down for a nap. Amy was out at the grocery store, which left me as my dad's caregiver. When he awoke, in barely a whisper, he asked to get up. I hoisted him from his hospital bed into his wheelchair, and then rolled him to the dining room table, where he liked to sit and gaze out the window. He sat quietly for a moment, and then murmured again, I want to go outside. I wheeled him from the dining room table to the back porch, carefully lifting his chair over the doorframe. I'm hungry. I went back into the house and grabbed a spoon and to-go container of vanilla pudding, something small I knew he could eat in his infirm state. As I came back to the porch with the pudding and sat down beside my dad, he began laughing. His whispers, moments before, intelligible, were now entirely nonsensical. He rambled, but beamed and chuckled to himself as he made more jokes about the pudding, each one hilarious in his own mind, but leaving me commensurately dumbfounded. I would love to recall any of what he said, but none of it was close to sensical enough to remember. In that moment, I realized it would be the last thing that came close to resembling a conversation I'd ever have with my dad. It was an experience I'd gone through a year and a half prior with my mom, one where she just woke up one day in a state of permanent hallucination, where the reality she lived in was one entirely within her own mind, entirely separate from the one I was in. Conversations with her ceased being more than two and a half sentences. She would say something, I would start to reply, and midway through my response, she would interrupt with a new, entirely off-topic statement. With my mom, this phase lasted for the last two months of her life. With my dad, it was the last two days. Even as we sat trying to talk about pudding, my dad worsened. Having gone through the experience with my mom, I knew there was nothing I could do to change the situation. And so instead, I did the only thing I could. I laughed along, trying to revel in these last moments of joy before I knew they'd be gone for good. In some beautifully tragic completion of a life, I flew spoonfuls of vanilla pudding towards his mouth and joined along in playing with the pudding on our lips, doing whatever I could to merge our realities just one more time. And then, as quickly as he'd entered this jovial hallucination, He'd fled from it, and into what's referred to as a state of terminal agitation. A state of perpetual hysteria and anger, where one is perturbed by everything and everyone around them, and desperate to escape. For my mother, this manifests as her trying in vain to climb over the sides of her hospital bed, in a dire attempt to flee to Hawaii, and away from the imaginary construction workers she believed were out to get her. 
from my dad, it was anger and screaming and abhorrence of and at the help he was being given. I rushed to get him back from his wheelchair into the hospital bed and then lifted the guide rails along its side, knowing if I didn't that preventing him from rolling himself out of the house would be a somber yet infuriating challenge. Having gone through the experience with my mother a year prior, I had to explain to my stepmother Amy what was happening when she got back from the grocery store, and then again to my sister Megan when she came over shortly later, and finally to my brother Lucas when I picked him up from the airport and had to explain that the father he'd spoken to 17 hours earlier was not one he'd meet again. When we got back to the house, my dad was lying on his back in the hospital bed and greeted Lucas by telling him to write, I'm happy, on the ceiling. Lucas stood confused for a moment and then traced out the words on the ceiling. Our dad replied, it didn't work, and then resigned himself to his bedside. Except for calling out that he needed help to pee later that night, those were his last words he ever spoke. That night he fell into a comatose state, permanently asleep with any semblance of emotion only represented by changes in the frequency of his guttural snores. My siblings and stepmother and I would take turns reading and speaking to him, hopeful that what we'd heard of hearing being the last sense to fade was true, and we'd quietly revel any time he snored slightly differently as we were beside him. For the next day and a half, he laid there, until on Sunday morning, being held by his healer, with my brother and sister and I in the basement, and Amy in the garden, he died. His healer came down to tell us, and my brother and sister and I trudged upstairs. They felt him for a pulse, but I touched him and knew. It was the same lifeless sack I'd felt with my mom. A husk of a human, devoid of any energy. He was gone. Recently, I found myself crying over the realization that I have no idea what my last real conversation with either of my parents was. It was a fleeting feeling, but one that a year after my dad's death still carried me away. Mostly because it was funny. I like to attribute my last conversation with my dad to one of airplanes full of pudding. Certainly slightly less jarring than one of his crotch. But in reality, neither of those was a conversation. And the pudding was a final attempt to have one more warm memory. And that may be enough. I don't need to have the cinematic ideal of the last momentous words as a parent dies in my arms. But the longing still exists. With my mom, my last words were I love you. A phrase I repeated incessantly, desperate to hear her say it back just one more time. And another. And another. As she slipped into a drug-induced coma called palliative sedation. But that, too, wasn't a conversation. Though I know there were ones after, the last actual conversation I can remember with my dad is one of his opinions on french fry rankings and a preference for fucking McDonald's. It was a ridiculous conversation that beautifully highlights the whimsy he brought to everyday life. As I struggled to remember the last conversation I did have with either of my parents, I remembered my struggle of trying to figure out what else I wanted to say to my mom as she was dying. Inspired by movies that were nothing like my experience, I felt I should have some final momentous words of my mom, something that would bring us both closer. But then I remembered neither of us are movie characters and that I was struggling to come up with cinematic words because I had none. Over the previous 25 years, I'd built a relationship with my mom such that I could tell her everything I would have ever wanted, so that in the end, 
in the final months of her life, all that was left to say was, I love you. Even though my dad's decline was much faster than my mom's, and I didn't have the months of anguish to contemplate what to say, I'm forever grateful that I was left with the same set of words and nothing more to say to my dad. I love you.